0: In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the theme of Judges. It is repeated several times throughout the book and at least twice in the passage that we're going to read this morning. Uh, So um, we're going to be reading from Judges chapter 14. You may wonder, but aren't we ready for chapter 13? Why are we skipping chapter 13? Is the account of Samson's birth uh, not really important. Actually, Samson's birth is important. It's very important. Uh, his is a miraculous birth, but we're going to save the story of Samson's miraculous birth for our Advent series, which is miraculous births. So this seems to be a good place to start. So that's why we're kind of um, messing with the uh, schedule just a little bit. But. Uh, With that in mind, let's turn to Judges chapter 14. Uh, You'll find it on page uh, 214 in your pew Bible if you would like to follow with me. Um, Judges 14, beginning verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And then he went down and talked with a woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey From the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. So the young men used, as the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you could tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, Then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle to us that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entouch your husband and get him to tell us what this riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You don't love me. You put a riddle to my people and not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I've not told my father or my mother. Why should I tell you? And she went before him, oh, excuse me, uh, seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him so hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you would not plow with my heifer, You would not have found out my riddle. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. You know, the story of Samson is famous for its robust blend of sex and violence, power and death. Exactly the kind of stuff that we would see in a great action movie. In this story we see uh, Samson tearing a lion apart with his bare hands. He's deciding which woman to marry. uh, Either a Hebrew woman that his parents wanted him to marry or a Philistine woman. Which woman should he marry? and then uh, him killing 30 Philistines to get their clothing to pay off a bet. So this episode of Samson's Life, if, we're, if it were to be made into a movie, could appropriately be titled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But that title has already been taken. Uh, never th- by a better movie. Well, I mean, it's a good movie. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, this episode of Samson's Life, as we see what happens when you do what is right in your own eyes. Last week I ran across a highly intellectual and yet easy to understand commentary on what it is like to live a highly individualistic and self-centered life and to live it in a highly individualistic and self-centered environment. So uh, here it is, uh, it's Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, first panel. Uh, I'll read this whether you can see it or not, but those who are listening on the recording won't be able to see it. So Calvin says, I don't believe in ethics anymore. As far as I'm concerned, the ends justify the means. Get what you can while you can, or while the getting's good. That's what I say. Might makes right. The winners write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog world so I'll do whatever I have to and let others argue about whether it's right or not. Hobbes is pushing Calvin, for those of you listening, and Calvin says, Hey, why'd you do that? You were in my way. Now you're not in my way. The ends justifies the means. I didn't mean for everyone you dolt, just me ah. (laughs) Now, Calvin and Hobbes' world is also our world, isn't it? It was also Samson's world. Now, we live in a culture where people assume, or most people anyway, that they have the right to do whatever is right in their own eyes. The verse is not saying that everybody went around doing what they knew was evil they didn't go around saying, "Well, I know this is evil. I know I'm doing wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway." They were doing what they believed was right. And when we understand this, we learn two very important facts about sin. First of all, we learn what the definition of sin is. Now, when you contrast uh, this term, "the eyes of the Lord," with our eyes, uh, we learn that sin does not ultimately consist of the following. It does not consist of violating our conscience or violating our personal standards or violating community standards. Rather, it consists of violating God's standards, God's will. And this flies in the face of modern thinking. And we hear over and over and over again that only you can decide what is right for you. In other words, your own eyes, your heart's feelings, and your mind's perceptions are the only way to determine what is right and what is wrong. Isn't this what we hear from our culture on a regular basis? Follow your heart, my body, my choice, do what's right for you. And when these things are drilled into our heads on a regular basis, we come to the point where we believe that we are sovereign beings. That is, that there is no outside source over us who tells us what we can do and what we cannot do. And this is virtually how Samson lived his life. He was a totally self-centered man who compromised the Word of God living in an environment that was also totally self-centered and compromised the Word of God. Samson was doing what was right in his own eyes in the context of everyone else in his community doing what was right in their own eyes. Consequently, Samson along with the entire Jewish community was deceived, they saw nothing wrong with going along with the values and the standards of those who were around them. The Philistines had conquered Israel, by the way, and the Philistines had moved into Israel and established residence there, and um, they enslaved the Israelites. So the, 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 Is, the people of Israel were slaves to the people of, of Philistia. Verses 13 Uh, Chapter 13, verse 1, and chapter 14, verse 4, tell us that the rulers of the Philistines were rulers over Israel, so Israel didn't have their own government, Uh, and uh, yet it seems that the occupation was uh, a peaceful one. Now, it's important to note something at this point. Now, every other time we see Israel threatened or overpowered by their enemies, they cry to the Lord for deliverance. But we don't see that here. There is no resistance to their enslavement. Previously, the Israelites had groaned under the the, uh, domination of other nations, but now they are virtually unconscious of their enslavement. They've gotten used to it. It's good with that. They're good with that. Now, this is what happens when you become accommodated to the culture around you. Now, Israel no longer had a culture of their own. Uh, No one uh, was really concerned that they had uh, lost their identity as God's people. And they were really not honoring God or his word. Now, this is important to note if we're going to understand why Samson was drawn to the Philistine women. Now, most of the Israelites during this era were eager to marry into the Philistine society. Uh, perhaps it was a way to kind of move up the socioeconomic ladder a little bit and you could gain the acceptance and the approval of the Philistine community. Isn't something like this Don't don't we see something like this happening with the church today? No, we don't want conflict with the world. In fact, we want the world's approval, don't we? But the only way to secure the approval of, of the world is to become like the world. Now, many believe that since sexual ethics are changing, the church needs to get in step or else risk the disapproval of the world. Uh, we enjoy watching Blue Bloods. It's a crime drama, police drama on uh, CBS. And uh, Tom Selleck's character, uh, Frank Reagan, who is the chief of police of the, the NYPD, is being interviewed by someone one day. And he asked a question about the Catholic Church's teaching on homosexuality, the character uh, Frank Reagan is Roman Catholic, and so he's being asked a question about the Church's teaching on homosexuality, and his response goes something like this, well, I do think the Church is a little behind the times on this, but then I still miss the Latin Mass. In other words, what the producer is wanting us to see is that sexual ethics that the Church used to hold to, just like the Latin Mass, are now no longer up to date. Some updating needs to to be done. Uh, The church is outdated, the Bible is outdated, God is outdated. So the standard of what is wrong and what is right has changed. We can do whatever we want in our own eyes. This has been going on for some time now. In the first half of the 20th century, mainline Protestants made a bold move to become more relevant to modern people who just could not believe in the supernatural. I mean, after all, with the emergence of science and technology, who could possibly believe in spirits and miracles anymore? And so many churches began the process of demythologizing or de-supernaturalizing the Bible. So the Bible was no longer recognized as the divinely inspired authoritative word of God. It was now simply a book of inspiring yet flawed stories. The concept of conversion and the new birth were dropped. This, they believed, would take away the conflict between the church and those who could not believe in miracles, a divinely inspired Bible, or a physical resurrection. And that's what happened. But something else also happened. The recognized true authority was no longer God. It was now a scientific rationalism. I I heard or, or read something recently in the last few days. I'm not really sure who said it, where I read it, where I heard it. But the thought goes something like this. The real threat to Christianity is not atheism. It's complacency. Conflict between the gospel and atheism is necessary to keep Christianity vibrant. So here's what I want us to see before we get into the story of Samson. He was living in a culture that had accommodated itself to the world. He did what was right in his own eyes. He lived for himself. He was totally self-centered. And even though he was consecrated to God, he paid little attention to the Word of God Or to the warnings that were set before him. Is this beginning to sound relevant to you at at all? I mean this 14th chapter of Judges which is several thousand years old. Is it beginning to sound somewhat relevant? Do you see the similarities between the cultural context of Samson's day and the cultural context in which we live? Do you see the similarities between you and Samson, perhaps? What was it that God wanted Samson to do? Let's take a look at uh, the first four verses of our text again. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife he, he's ordering his parents around we don't see that today though do we yeah. uh, his father and mother said to him is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines that is they were not part of the covenant that Israel had with God meaning that they had other gods that they served Then the last part of verse 3, Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Uh, What an attitude. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. This is a little bit troubling for us, isn't it? How is it that Samson can be rude to his father and mother, order them around, and say what he wants, and the reason that he wants what he wants is because this woman is right in her eyes, and then the next thing we see Um, that this was from the Lord. But then we get the answer to that, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now we're disturbed again. Why would God want to look for an opportunity to stir up something with the Philistines? This can be disturbing to us. So we need to get past this in order to really understand the story uh, that we're going to be examining, um, you know, Later on, about uh, Samson's uh, enticement with this woman from Timnah and uh, his upcoming marriage, and all the stuff there about uh, the, the lion and the foxes and all of that. Let's see, if we don't understand uh, the story, uh, well, let me put it this way. It's easy for us to look at the story of Samson and come away thinking, well, this is, this is all about uh, you know, Samson engaging with people that he shouldn't be in, engaging with and doing stuff that he shouldn't be doing, and so don't be like Samson. But that's not the real message uh, that the writer, which ultimately is the Holy Spirit, is wanting to get across to us um, If we read it, you know, just from our eyes, how it seems to us, uh, we're going to actually miss the actual message of the story. In verse 4, again, we see God seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. He's seeking an opportunity to stir up conflict between Israel and the Philistines. Now, why would God want to do a thing like that? Israel was at peace with the Philistines, they were getting along just fine and so why would God want to stir up conflict why would he seek an opportunity to stir up conflict for this reason the nation of Israel was on the verge of extinction within a couple of generations they could have completely assimilated into the Philistine nation and culture In his commentary on Judges, Michael Wilcox says this, "...there is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world, for where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over." This is exactly what had happened to the people of Israel. Their nation had been swallowed up by the the Philistines, and they were intermarrying with one another and within just a couple of generations there would be no distinction between Israel and the Philistines or any other nation. No distinct Jewish nation. So why does that matter? What difference does it make? Is there something wrong with people intermarrying? No, not at all, but in this case, I want you to listen carefully because I'm about to explain the real meaning of the story. If there is no distinct Jewish nation, then there is no line from which the Messiah can come. When we look at the story of Samson, it appears that it's merely about a self-centered man who had accommodated himself to the culture around him unnecessarily, creating conflict between himself and his people and the Philistines. But if that's all we see, we're going to have difficulty understanding the message for us through Samson's life. And that's why we need to see the deeper message here. See, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of God were in need of a king and not just any king, but a perfect king. The perfect king would have to be born through the line of Judah. But if Judah is assimilated with the Philistines, there would be no messianic line. The story of Samson really isn't about Samson, it's about Jesus. Samson's life points to our need for a perfect deliverer, a deliverer whose power to save is obviously from God. And so God uses Samson to stir up conflict between his people and the Philistines to keep the Jewish people distinct. But we're still bothered by all of this. When we get to the New Testament we see Jesus coming into the world and we tend to focus on the the phrases from Luke's account peace on earth, goodwill toward men and All of that is true. And yet, when Jesus came, what did he say? He came to do. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. (laughs) Meaning he came to stir up conflict. He did, didn't he? Where do you see conflict between Jesus and anybody else? Well, he had. Fair amount of conflict with the Pharisees, didn't he? I mean, every time he told a parable or had something to to say, uh, it was always uh, kind of antagonistic toward the Pharisees. He had some conflict with the Roman authorities. Uh, Eventually, you know, they put him to death. There was conflict between him and ordinary people in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed to 5,000. They were all filled, and there were you know, 12 baskets left over and so the next time Jesus comes out to teach the people come out and uh, they are looking for another miracle to feed their stomachs and Jesus has words uh, that are really hard for them to swallow and digest he says unless you eat my flesh and drink of my blood you have no part of me and they couldn't handle that wanted nothing to do with it and so they walked away. There was conflict between Jesus and the members of his own family. They thought he was beside himself and came down while he was teaching to take him away. There was even conflict between him and his disciples. Remember when Jesus announced that he must be betrayed and turned over to the um, into the hands of, of evil men? and be crucified and Peter came up to him and said God forbid Lord this shall never happen to you that's conflict in his own words Jesus said this is um, in Matthew chapter 10 do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. If you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you will create conflict. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you should go around and uh, you know, act like an idiot and a, a total jerk. And offend people with insults or hammer them over the head with Bible verses taken out of context. What I'm saying is this if you are an authentic Christian and you are presenting the gospel to someone in a very genuine, humble, and meek manner, there's still going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and not felt tension? If that's the case, it's probably because that person has already been kind of cultivated to to receive the word implanted, which can save the soul. But in most cases, there's going to be an uneasiness, uh, a, a, a tension, uh, some conflict. I mean, I've I've had people. I'll quote John three sixteen to them, and they get mad at me. Uh, I understand if I quote something from Romans nine. A lot of people get mad when I. Uh, read from Romans 9, but um, you get the idea if we're talking about spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare you know, naturally involves conflict. Uh, there is no way to invade the forces of darkness apart from conflict. You know, when I arise though, it's always best to keep peace at all costs, but in the eyes of the Lord, conflict may be necessary to keep his people from becoming apathetic to his word and his mission. This is what we see happening with Samson and the people of Israel. But what is God doing through his people today? Pretty much the same thing. Just as God used Samson, a man who had been consecrated to God yet had accommodated himself to the culture, culture around him, God will use you to transform the lives of many. But there will be conflict. Now, having established this, we are now ready for the story of Samson going down to Timnah and finding a woman who looks good in his eyes. It's a remarkable story, a most unusual story Actually, it's a very entertaining story, but we don't have time for it this morning. I took up all of our time doing the introduction. But I wanted you to have some kind of perspective before jumping into the story unaware of the context of what was going on in Samson's eyes and what was going on in God's eyes. Otherwise, we'd never really see what was going on in God's eyes. We'd only see from our perspective. So until uh, next week, let me give you a couple of closing thoughts. First of all, God remains unconditionally committed to his covenant promises. He has promised to love them and give them an inheritance and never break his commitment to do so. God is faithful to his promises that he fulfills them in spite of the sins of his people. But he doesn't just stop there. God actually uses their own sinfulness to bring about deliverance. And that's what God is doing here with Samson when he goes down to Timnah to seek a wife there, and his father and mother did not realize that it was of the Lord. God works even through our sinful disobedient behavior to bring deliverance. What kind of God is that? The supreme example of this is where we see God using the the free, wicked choices of human beings to put Jesus to death, something that actually redeems the world from free, wicked choices. Now, even though the people who put Jesus to death were acting wickedly, God used their wickedness to fulfill his redemptive purposes. You see what kind of God we have? A God who looks on his people and sees them doing what's right in their own eyes, who have accommodated themselves to the culture around around them. And instead of abandoning them to their own decisions, he reaches in and saves them from themselves. God does all of this through people Who do what is right in their own eyes imagine what he could do through people who do right or do what is right in god's eyes let's pray together our father as we pause here to reflect upon the words of scripture that we have read some that we might just kind of glance over or perhaps if we read carefully we might stumble over. But you have put those words there to get our attention and even though it doesn't seem to be part of your nature to uh, look for an occasion for conflict or that's something that is obviously against your will uh, that to see Samson doing uh, something that he should not be doing and, and to see that that was of the Lord uh, can be troubling for us. Yet at the same time, it's comforting for us to, to realize that there is nothing that we can do that your grace cannot cover. Uh, there is no sin that we can commit that would nullify your grace or emasculate your gospel, Uh, there is nothing that we can say or do that can keep your will from being done. Nevertheless, we pray that you would put within us a desire for you to work in us not primarily through our sinful actions or in spite of our sinful actions, but as a result of our obedient, loving response to your word. there are so many people around us who have not really understood the gospel. They've surely heard of, of you and know that Jesus was a a real historical figure who died on the cross and resurrected the third day, but so many do not really understand what that means. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will soften the hearts of of those uh, whom you place in our paths. And when we have those meetings with them through Appointments that you ordain, we pray that even as we come to the stage there where um, everyone's feeling tension, that we might realize that this is an indication that your spirit is at work. So, Lord, be at work in us. Be at work in the hearts and minds of Our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students, give us the opportunity to share the good news of your word. For this is right in your eyes. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.